Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 92 of Yogaland. Today, my guest is Baxter Bell. Baxter Bell is an old friend. I know him through Jason and through Yoga Journal, and he has just written, co-written a book with Nina Zolito, and it's called Yoga for Healthy Aging, and that's what we focus on today. You'll notice that I ask Baxter a lot of questions about studies in the book, and I trust him more than I trust myself with interpreting studies because Baxter was formerly a family doc before he moved into the yoga profession, and he is a certified yoga therapist, and he also is a practicing acupuncturist. So he just has a really deep understanding of scientific studies, how they're written, how they're formulated, and how to interpret the data. I learned a lot from their book. I think it's both very user-friendly to someone who perhaps has not done yoga, like your mom or your grandma or your auntie. It's also, for me, it was just a great read because they do cite a lot of different studies and things that I hadn't heard of before. So without further ado, enjoy the interview with Baxter. I'm so excited to talk to you today, Baxter. It's been a while. Yes, it's so great to talk with you. And I have the good fortune to get to see you while we're talking. (laughs) I know, it's so nice. I often think of our trip to Cuba really fondly. You and Jason led a retreat to Cuba Mm -hmm. many years ago. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I mean, before Cuba was, uh, way before Cuba was open. And uh, I don't know, I just remember that trip so well, so... It's good to see you. Me also, yeah. And I was just back there a year ago, so it was fun to go to places that we had all visited together and remember the good times that we had, for sure. Oh, that's so nice. That's so nice. Did you see any yoga people while you were there? I did. I actually sat down with Eduardo Pimentel, who is the kind of head of the movement of yoga there in Cuba. And oh my gosh, there were a couple of the other people that were around back in the day who were still teaching. And I met a whole new crew of people that are learning to be yoga teachers there. And I actually talked with two different groups, one in Ogin, the city of Ogin, and then one in uh, in Havana. So it was, it was great. That's awesome. That's yeah. so great. So you have a new book that you've co-authored that we're going to talk about today called Yoga for Healthy Aging. So can you tell me what was the impetus behind writing the book? Gosh, I don't know, six and a half years ago. Nina Zolotov and I were talking one day about yoga and our opinions about things and things that we knew about. And, and we thought, you know, we, we know a lot of stuff. We have a lot of opinions about yoga and yoga asana and yoga tradition and whatnot. And so we decided to, to start a blog. And the decision was made to blog five days a week. Great. And so we started in, I think it was September 19th six and a half years ago. And so that's what we started to do. And then in the course of writing about yoga all the time for several years, we started to see kind of a a set of ideas coalescing around, you know, some key principles and then some key practices and some areas where yoga seemed to be very influential. And so out of that, we designed a an intensive training program called Yoga for Healthy Aging Intensive. And we offered that for the first time, I think about two and a half, almost three years ago. I think it's really cool that you landed on the topic for your book by committing to writing regularly for a blog without kind of having an end point. I feel like that's advice you get all the time when 
you know, it's just like, just right, just right. And so few people actually do that because it's, it's really time consuming and takes a lot of commitment. So that's really cool that, that you did that. And then you guys together, even with two people kind of this, this thread came through. Yeah. You know, you don't know what you're getting into for sure. <laughs> and yeah. I've done some writing before because I, you know, I used to write for yoga journal and some other outlets. So yeah, it was interesting to make a completely different commitment, you know, just volunteering the time, right. Just because our love of yoga right. and our interest in disseminating some information. And fortunately people liked it a lot. You know, at first it was like, is anybody actually reading our blog? Yeah. And then I would travel around as Jason does and, you know, lead workshops and whatnot. And people started coming up more and more regularly saying, I just want you to know that I really get a lot out of reading the blog all the time. It's really helpful. It's so both nice. Students and teachers. So that was really encouraging mm-hmm, obviously, mm-hmm. To, to give us a little more impetus. Yeah. To keep it going. Can I ask when you did that first intensive, what was the age range of the people participating? Well, that's a great question. Say the age range. I remember we had at least one or two people that were in their early 30s. And then we had some people that were definitely in, I think we had one yoga teacher that came who was in her late 60s, early 70s. Mm. And remember, we had a mixture. We had about, about two thirds to three quarters of folks that have attended our intensives. Are teachers interested in, you know, learning the tools so they can share them with their students? Right, right. But a quarter to a third are just interested individuals, yoga students who want to be able to incorporate the tools into their own lives. Yeah. So um, we got an interesting range, age range. <clears throat> we had someone who came to one we did here in California last summer who was, you know, just 41. She's not old by any means, but she works with both younger adults and older adults mm-hmm. in her home community in Cincinnati, Ohio. So, you know, it's been great. And the great thing about these intensives is most of the people come from outside of California, come out here to take them when we have them here. And then we've done our first one outside the area. We did one in Chicago and that was almost exclusively people from Chicago, mm-hmm. the local community. So it's been fun to take it on the road here recently. One thing that I noticed about the book is that I felt like when I think of being, let's say, in my 60s, 70s, 80s and taking up some kind of new hobby or discipline, I think I would be scared to do it for the first time. And, you know, I've definitely tried to encourage my mom over the years to do it. And we've tried to encourage Jason's mom's mom to do it. And, you know, there's Mm -hmm. definitely there's definitely resistance. But it seemed, sure. <laughs> but it seemed like as I was reading your book that you feel like people really could start to do a yoga practice in their later years and get a lot out of it. Like you don't have to be doing it your whole life to get a lot out of it. Absolutely. That's so true. And you know, what's so interesting, Andrea, is that the statistics are now that the fastest growing demographic of new students in America are people over 65. Mm. The fastest growing portion of the people that show up in class for the first time as new students is the older adults. So the word is out. They're really interested in it. And on some level, I'm still kind of surprised that I have so many folks that are coming to take the intensive or that I meet when I'm traveling and teaching to say, you know, I have three classes for people, you know, at the senior center. And someone was just telling me about their oldest student yesterday, just my, my buddy who assists me in my back care class. Perry said, I had, I, I had this woman in class who I thought was 92. Turns out she's really 95. Wow. But he says she's so spunky. You know what I mean? So, you know, it's, again, it's, you know, it's going to be different for everybody. But I think that given proper guidance and some basic, you know, ideas to follow, 
Uh, I think it can be safe and very beneficial for people, regardless of what age they are, to start to start the practice. Right. And, you know, yoga for healthy aging, I just got to say this right now, it's not just for older people. I mean, you know, we, we were talking about this the other day in my teacher training course, and one of the students says, sounds like it's really for everybody. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, it really is for everyone of any age, because in all in all truthfulness, you know, the younger you begin, I believe, the better the benefits are going to be over time. Mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm. you're going to get more preventative benefits if you start and establish earlier. That's not to dissuade people who start in their 40s or their 50s or their 60s from starting, because you can still get good benefits even if you begin practicing at an older age. So I am definitely going to pass that information on to my parents because, like I said, it can be. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like I understand if I put myself in their shoes. It's it's hard for anyone at any any age to start something new. I see this in my own daughter. Mm-hmm. at the age of five, yeah. like she wants to be good at something right away. And so, right. you know, that, that mm-hmm. you just bring that with you. But I feel like this is the, what you've created as a really nice doorway into getting started. Yeah, great. Thanks. Yeah. I think it, I think it works nicely. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that you define early in the book, I was so happy to see this because it's something I think about so much now that I'm 45, you define health span early on in the book. So can you mm, share that right. with, with everyone? Yeah, I'm glad you started with that because, uh, you know, when Nina and I were talking about this, you know, we keep encountering people who want to believe that yoga will increase their lifespan. (laughs) And, you know, unfortunately, lifespan now is kind of semi-fixed. I mean, believe me, there are people trying to do that with scientific technologies. Mm -hmm. But really, if you look at like the average lifespan of someone in the United States, it's around 80 years of age, give or take a couple of years, if you're Mm -hmm. a man or a woman. And, you know, some people will live beyond that and others will never make it to that. But that's the average lifespan Mm -hmm. of somebody in this country. Right. And internationally, it's not that far off. So if that's the case, our intention was to say, what can we do as individuals to increase the number of years and days and hours that were healthy Mm -hmm. versus the number of days that were really sick and, and incapacitated and maybe getting close to death, right? For some people, that never happens till the very end of life, right? And then maybe That's for the last the dream. year or two, they... <laughs> That's the that dream. That's the dream, right? Yeah. Have it be right, like for a week, right before you die. Yeah. You have enough time to get everybody there and, you know, yeah. say what you need to say and, and have closure around stuff. And so that would be ideal. But in reality, you know, a lot of people have a have a diagnosis, a serious diagnosis when they're 38 and they're dealing with that for four or five years. And maybe they come out of it on the other end, but they have what we call several years of morbidity, meaning Mm -hmm. a a time and time in their life when they're very sick and they're not able to do things as they did before. And, you know, that happens to kids too, right? I mean, we know, I know of at least one or two friends who had scarlet fever when they were little and they were sick for like a year and a half and they couldn't do much. Right. And that's part of their overall morbidity over the course of their lifetime. Mm-hmm. So we really focus on lengthening one's health span, which is your lifespan, subtracting the number of years so that you're in ill health or your morbidity, then you get your health span. Mm-hmm. Now, until the end of your life, you don't know what that is ultimately. You don't know how big or how long that's going to be. But the feeling is that if we do a good job with our preventative lifestyle uh, choices, of which yoga practices can be a big part of that, if you subtract, you know, your your total lifespan and you take away from that the number of years that you're sick, that's how you get your health span. Yeah. So when we're hoping, and, and really I think research is starting to show that 
a lot of our yoga practices can impact chronic diseases of aging and lead to uh, a longer health span. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. Yes, it really is. I mean, and, you know, many of us have relatives who have lived to ripe old age, but, you know, maybe they've mm-hmm. wound up with chronic diseases that mm-hmm. where they can still function, but they just have many years of having to deal with mm-hmm. the, you know, with the side effects of having diabetes or and that that's what really mm-hmm. runs in my family. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I'm very aware of it because I had gestational diabetes. So I have to have like diabetes tests every year. And yeah. so but having that information is great because we can start to work on things a little earlier than perhaps our relatives did, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Just getting into the heart of the book a little bit. You talk early on about, you know, the desire to that we all have to maintain independence as we age and that, you know, often mm-hmm. In the sort of clinical setting, we talk about being able to dress yourself and go to the bathroom on your own and cook your food. But really, right. like you, you want to aim a little higher than that, which I appreciate. Like right. you, we yeah. want to aim for being That's able to boring. continue, <laughs> yeah, continue to do what we love, like travel or or write or yeah. garden or all these things. So, so you split the book up into these four main areas that will help you maintain independence. So strength, flexibility, balance, and agility. Mm -hmm. And I want to just ask you a few questions about each little, little section. Sure. First thing that comes to mind is that I always think about building strength because I was kind of born naturally flexible, but it's really, really hard for me to maintain and and build strength. Um, So I always think about that. But I was interested to see when I was reading the flexibility chapter that it seems like for someone like your mom, adding just a little bit of flexibility could maybe help her with her balance, could help her with some of the other four essential Mm -hmm. kind of pillars, like more flexibility can help you with balance, more flexibility can help you with agility. So can you talk about that interrelationship a little bit? On a certain level, we kind of, I won't say arbitrarily, but we separate things out, which is something we do in the West a lot when it comes to trying to understand things, right? We try to find the the smallest component that causes something to happen. And really, you know, strength, flexibility, balance, and agility are interconnected in many ways, right? You know, they're almost, you you almost need some of all of them to do anything. Mm. And, you know, if I had someone brand new coming to work with me, almost regardless of age, I might start with strength first, just because if you're overly flexible, it brings you back into better balance in some sense, creates more stability in your joints typically a little bit healthier for the joints over time. If I had to choose one of the four skills, I might start with, with strength. Mm-hmm. However, you know, especially as we get a little bit older, um, our tissues do become a little more inflexible. And so if we are working on flexibility regularly, we can slow that process down a little bit. We're probably not going to be able to stop it altogether, but we can certainly slow it down and try to maintain a better range of motion on all of our joints over time. And then also, you know, if you were walking down the street and someone kind of rushed out of a building and bumped into you, if you're able to kind of be flexible like the trunk of a tree can move a little bit in a strong wind, you know, you have to be strong, obviously, but you also need to be flexible so that you don't just fall over, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't lose your balance. Yeah. So, you know, you can, you can think about, you know, the, the benefits of flexibility uh, helping one in almost all the other realms 
And remembering that in some ways they're all intimately interconnected in allowing us to move throughout our day doing the things we have to do, like you know, get up and make breakfast and clean the house or whatever, and the things that we want to do that actually give more meaning to our lives that make, mm. make it kind of worthwhile to get up in the morning. Yeah, Right. So right, right. I think that's, so that's a little bit about flexibility and a little bit about strength also. <clears throat> and just a little bit about balance. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> We all know that we lose flexibility as we age. You know, it's, it's something that you can feel really readily in your body. And mm-hmm. everything that I read and, and, and you walk through this clearly in the book, it, it, it seems, I'm like speaking in layman's terms here, but it seems like a, it all boils down to like, we kind of dry up. Right. <laughs> like, like right, right. Uh, yeah, on a very basic level, on a very yeah. basic level, we dry up. So I, I am so curious. You say that yoga can potentially help us slow that slow down the loss flexibility loss. Is it just because we're kind of regularly putting our body through its ranges of motion, or or do we act as yoga or stretching or exercise actually help us maintain more fluid or stimulate the production of more blood? Or you know, using that as an example, it's it's way too simple, obviously, to say we dry up. Yeah. It's a very gradual process that we lose water content in a lot of our tissues and that sometimes it gets replaced with things that are less fluid and less mobile. But it happens gradually and slowly. And we do sometimes obviously notice that like sometimes I'll not have practiced for a couple of days and I go to do, you know, reclining strap to foot pose, Siptopadam Gustafa. And I'm like, wow, my leg is tipped a lot more forward than it was when I was doing this regularly, you know, so I can mm-hmm. feel that those tissues have lost some of their inherent flexibility. And, but, but on the other hand, if I'm more diligent about doing my practice, I can regain some of that. So it's not as simple as the practice helps us to hang on to more water content. But I think that, uh, number one, we continue to use our tissues regularly enough that we're probably not going to shrink up as quickly and get as, as, as tight as we would otherwise. I think we also, because we're moving our joints through the range of motion, that actually helps to deliver nutrition and remove waste products from the joints mm-hmm. more regularly. And that's going to keep the joints healthier, right? So they're not going to get arthritic, which can contribute in a different way to a loss of movement, right? So that's another thing. And then the other thing is if we are living a more complete yogic lifestyle, we're probably becoming more in tune with the foods we eat and how they make us feel and we become, a lot of people become much more interested in eating much more healthy. Mm-hmm. And so I think the fact that we're making healthier choices, that we're eating healthy fats and uh, uh, proteins and, and sugars that are actually going to be healthier than some of the processed stuff that's out there, all that good nutrition is also going to support the body being able to maintain as much flexibility as it can over time. Yeah. So I think it's more those factors than anything else. Okay. There is, you have this like little line in the book about how when you started doing yoga, you were not very flexible and that you were surprised mm-hmm. to find that, f- that becoming more flexible through doing yoga helped made p- playing the violin easier for you. How did, how did, right, where, right. how did it help you with playing the violin? Well, you know, when you play an instrument like a violin or a guitar, you often assume an unusual physical posture, right? So for me, I'm holding the violin underneath my left chin, my left hand is holding onto the neck of the violin, and my right arm holds a bow, That and my elbow has to come for, forward and around so that I pull the bow correctly across the strings to make a good sound. So it's not a symmetric, even thing. It's kind of cattywampus and twisted, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know, the upper back turns a little bit, the head tips to the side, right? So it creates 
musculoskeletal imbalances in the body as I'm trying to make beautiful music. And what I found is when I started to practice yoga, number one, I became really aware, like, wow, my neck is really tight on one side and loose on the other. And, wow, it's easy for me to turn more to the left but not so much to the right. Mm. And, you know, wow, my shoulders are different because they're kind of positioned differently and doing different things. So what I think happened was that I started to become aware of my imbalances, and the yoga practice started to strengthen areas that were weak and to stretch areas that were tight, and I became more balanced overall. And probably because of that, you know, I was more aware when I was playing, uh, when I would start to fatigue or I would start to go more into those old habits where things didn't start to feel so great. Even though I was might be enjoying playing, my physical body was complaining a little bit. So mm. I tuned into my body more clearly. And, you know, yogis are said to become much more in tune with the subtler changes in the body uh, as opposed to just like the gross stuff, like if I twisted my ankle, I, that would get my attention. Mm -hmm. But if, you know, my middle left, right back area, which is influenced by the way that I hold my bow, suddenly starts to talk to me a little bit, I might normally ignore that and just keep going on as opposed to maybe stopping and maybe releasing that area. So I think mm -hmm. those things were the ways that my yoga practice started to help my, my violin playing. Mm -hmm. And I also think that it helped me to, I started as an adult because I started yoga as an adult. I started doing something that required that I was improving my focus and concentration. And playing a musical instrument, well, benefits from being focused and concentrated. So I think there were mental benefits to the yoga practice that probably also influenced playing the violin oh, and enjoying it more. Oh, wow. That's great. That's yeah. great. Yeah. No one's ever asked me about my violin playing. Thank you. <laughs> well, I, you played your violin at a restaurant in Cuba. Do you remember that? I remember that. Oh, my God. So, yeah, that was the Hotel Rachel, right, which is a kind of a Jewish-themed hotel. Right. And you remember the violinist came up, and he was he, he asked if anybody knew how to play uh, Hava Nagila because he didn't know it, and he's playing in a Jewish hotel. And I happened to know it, and he let me. I couldn't believe he let me play his violin. That was a cool I moment. I think that was before the days when I would travel internationally with my violin, but that was fun. That was a really cool moment, especially because for anyone who hasn't been to Cuba, Cuba's, you know— any everywhere you go, there's either one person or a trio of people playing music or even more. So right. everywhere. Yeah, everywhere, everywhere, which is so wonderful. And so I just remember we were in this restaurant and it was one of like the fancier places the group went. And all of a sudden yeah, I looked over and there's Baxter <laughs> Bell playing <laughs> playing Hoffman <Hobbit and> Kila. <laughs> oh my gosh. So when I was there the last time, just a year ago. These guys saw that I had my violin case, this, this band that was going to perform for us at this place we were staying. And they were like, go get your violin. I go, really? So <laughs> I stood in the back and they were listening to what I was doing, kind of to see if I was making reasonable sounds. And at one point, the, uh, the trumpet player said, he's got it. And they pushed me up in front and they all got really quiet and they, they gave me a solo. Oh, my god! <laughs> so I got a solo with a Cuban band when I was there the last time. Wow. So you didn't sound like you were, they, they were, they would check to make sure that first you didn't sound like you were screechy and wow. Right, right. And then I was actually playing the melody line that they oh, were all playing in okay. the song that I had never played before. Oh my yeah, so gosh. So it, it was super fun. That is really cool. Yeah. That is really cool. Yep. Making me want to go back to Cuba. Cuba. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Totally. I want to go back to strength for a moment. So, okay. you know, we all know that we lose strength as we there's actually muscle loss that happens, right? As we age. Yeah. Yeah. There's something called skeletal muscle atrophy is okay. the technical term for that. And it's the physiologic process. I was a little bummed to see that it could start as early as our thirties. I didn't realize that. 
I, I know. Yeah. I know. Yeah. 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 That's mostly when people are inactive and not doing anything, but okay. yeah, it can happen. I mean, it probably happens for most people a little later. <clears throat> and again, it's gradual and it's considered a normal part of aging. So it's not a disease process. It's just like, you know, over time we lose some muscle mass, we lose muscle, you know, cells and fibers. So the muscles are smaller and they're, they can not be quite as strong as they were before. Um, but the good news is that if you are using your muscles regularly and you're intentionally maintaining strength in the muscles, you'll slow that process down quite a bit. Mm, okay. You could, in all likelihood, maintain pretty adequate strength into older age to do most things that you want to do. In fact, you know, they, they have studies that show that older adults who ride are road cyclists on bicycles sometimes perform at an equal level into their 50s to people in their 20s and 30s. Oh, wow. Probably because they're, they're bicycling regularly and for long periods of time, and they're maintaining adequate muscle mass and strength to be competitive. Right? Oh, that's great. And then after that, it, it, you know, you start to lose it very gradually, but that doesn't mean you can't continue to do those activities you know, pretty, pretty, pretty well and, and, and enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Right? That your, your ability will allow you to still enjoy those things for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. Which is why doing activities like yoga asana that have strength as a component of them is a really good idea. Right, right. And then I learned something else from the book, which is I knew, well, I assumed that yoga would be helpful for bone strength because a lot of it is weight bearing. Mm-hmm. I didn't know right. that uh, it's that contracting the muscles and holding poses can actually stimulate the bones to strengthen themselves. That adds to our understanding of simple weight-bearing exercise. Right? So if I'm on my feet and I'm walking, that's going to transmit forces up into my legs, which will probably help to keep my, my upper leg bone at the hip joint stronger over time. Mm-hmm. We, we've known that for a long time. Mm-hmm. But there's some newer basic science research that seems to indicate that, you know, like a strong isometric muscle contraction, say in my shoulder area with the muscles that attach along the upper spine, and pulling on those bones will transmit adequate force through the bone, like a sound wave going through the bone. If my bones are strong enough already, it's not going to stimulate anything new. But if I'm starting to get some thinning, that wave of energy uh, hits the cells that make new bone inside my bones, and it turns on the production of new bone matrix. So, you know, we sense and theorize that that's why, you know, an, an overall practice like yoga that stimulates so many different uh, parts of the body, some of them in contact with the floor and other parts up in the air, like the arms in Warrior Two, for example, out to your sides, that if you even add in, so, so my recommendation is based on that theoretical information from some research is, okay, I'm going to keep my arms out there and I'm going to actively isometrically contract the muscles more consciously. So I'm going to go beyond what's necessary to keep my arms out to the side to potentially take advantage of that, that information, and that might help to build stronger bones over time. Yeah. And, you know, there's this new study that came out just about a year ago that Lauren Fishman conducted in New York, and he's a physician and a yoga practitioner and a physiatrist, a physical med, medicine and rehabilitation specialist. And, you know, he got people from around the country to participate. And although it's not definitive, and there are some, you know, like with all studies, some questions about the methodology, his results are encouraging in that some of the people who had osteoporosis 
saw enough improvement in their DEXA scan x-ray that they moved to a less intense form of thinning called osteopenia. Oh, wow. Where some people who had osteopenia saw that their, their, their bone density didn't get any worse. So they were able to maintain whatever their level of density was over that several-year period that the study took place. That's huge. It was statistically significant, but it wasn't the majority of people in the study, right? So that's why, you know, studies are sometimes tough to know, well, how valuable is this information? I think it's very encouraging, and I think it's, I think it's encouraging enough to say, hey, it's worth developing a regular practice right. if you are from a family that tends to develop osteoporosis. If you are someone who already has osteopenia or osteoporosis, those are really great people to think about actually working with someone to develop a nice little practice that would uh, help them to maintain good strength and possibly maintain their bone strength as well over time. Yeah. And the other recommendation that you have in the book is holding the poses for 30 seconds or more that, you know, whipping, whipping through your vinyasas isn't going to necessarily help you build that bone strength. Right. And, and, And that recommendation, I think it's important to know where that comes from. It's like, well, why 30 seconds? Why not 15? Why not 65? Well, in the study that Lauren Fishman did, they held each of the 12 yoga asanas that they did on a daily basis for 30 seconds. So I don't know if 15 seconds is adequate because no one's ever studied mm, it. Okay. And I don't know if a minute is better because no one's ever studied that. What I do know is in the one study that's been done so far, holding the poses for 30 seconds was beneficial for some of the participants in the study. Got so it. that's what I based my recommendation on. Okay. If I want to strengthen my muscles more, I would probably work towards higher holds. So mm-hmm. I could both strengthen my bones by holding to 30 seconds, but if I want to get more endurance in some of my muscle groups, I might go to 60 seconds or mm-hmm. 90 seconds. Right? And if I'm going for improved long-term flexibility in a tight area, there's some scientific evidence that holding poses for 90 seconds or longer will change the physiology of the muscle fibers and a protein inside the muscle fibers that will allow the muscle to stay longer for a longer period of time. So instead of waking up the next day and going, well, I had a great practice yesterday, but I'm now stiffer than I was. I'm back to my original stiffness of yesterday morning. You might actually start to see that your resting length of your muscle starts to improve over time. Hmm. So that's where some of our ideas came around. How long should you hold stuff? Yeah. I have been wondering about longer holds lately for flexibility because I used to do yin yoga and I am, I mean, see, so so here's the thing. This is where it's probably, I'm not the right person for this. I used to do yin yoga. I'm already kind of, my baseline is pretty flexible for the average person. Yes. And I think I was over stretching with the longer holds. This is kind of a new emerging topic that I think people like Jason and myself and other people that are around a lot of people that reach a lot of people need to be bringing to light. And that is, if you're already really flexible, what does more flexibility actually provide for you? Right. Unless you work for Cirque du Soleil, not very much. (laughs) Exactly. Seriously, right? Yeah. Because when we go beyond, if we're already maybe a little hyper-flexible in some joints, it means that we move more dramatically through range of motion than other people do. And therefore, our joints have to handle that extra movement. And it could lead to early wear and tear in some joints or, you know, just some trouble with the soft tissues like the ligaments and the tendons. 
And a lot of times now what I'm encouraging my more flexible students to do is say, you know what, I can do that easily. Let me go for the opposite action and actually try to create strengthening in poses that might be normally considered stretching poses. For example, strap to foot pose lying on your back, right? Leg up in the air. You know, if you can easily pull that leg, you know, within 45 degrees of your chest, you are, you are probably hyperflexible in your hip joint with that particular movement. Mm -hmm. So what I have those students do is I say, take your leg back to vertical, pull on the strap like you're going to try to pull your leg towards your chest, but resist the heel away from your body mm -hmm. to create isometric strengthening across the back of your hamstring area and your gluteal area so that you get stronger in that area that you're already super flexible, at least probably from a ligament perspective, which is really close into the joint. Some of the students are kind of getting it. They've realized, you know, I think sometimes I've maybe injured myself or, you know, everything's a little too wobbly sometimes when I'm trying to do strength poses and they're starting to get that message. So I think that's going to be more and more prominent over time. And it's a little off topic from yoga for healthy aging, except it isn't, mm -hmm. right? Because if my practice is limb harming, which in yoga is called Ashtabhanga, limb harming, <laughs> Ashtabhanga is the, is the Sanskrit word for that. It's a good if word. it's limb harming, then I need to become aware of that and try the opposite or try some other way, way to bring myself back into balance. Right. And that's going to keep me healthy over time so mm -hmm. I can age well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Yep. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Very interesting. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners out there are going to fall into that category because a lot of people that are flexible are drawn to yoga practices like yin yoga like the um, what used to be called uh, the Anyasara system, in which you had to have great flexibility to do a lot of the back bends that were very popular in that system. And, you know, so, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to attract people. If they're already naturally flexible, they're going to go, wow, I'm really good at this. This is fun. Whereas it may or may not be fun 10 years down the road. In the long term. It's true. It's true. I, I, yeah. Yeah. When I started doing yoga, I was kind of like, oh, I can do this. I'm, I'm good at this, you know, because it just sort of came, certain yeah, things came naturally. Fun. I like it. <laughs> right. right. Hey, right. I'll demonstrate that pose. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Or well, whatever. Yeah. Right. different area of focus. I, I was really okay. happy to see that walking around without shoes on can be helpful as we age. Mm, mm. Yeah. Cause I've always been yeah. a proponent of that. So can you talk yeah. about that? Yeah. Well, it's so interesting. I just taught a workshop this past weekend on yoga for healthy feet. So it was a therapeutic workshop. And one of the attendees, one of the students said, you know, I've heard as you get older, it's not a good idea to walk around barefoot because you tend to lose the soft tissue in the heel pad and in the ball of the foot. And I said, well, I haven't read that. My response was I hadn't read that, but certainly, you know, we do lose tissue and we've talked about muscle loss. So it's entirely possible we could lose some supportive tissue in the sole of the foot. But what I think is important to keep in mind is that the sole of the foot is innervated with lots of nerve endings that send information back to our brain that tell us about the surfaces that we're walking on. 
and they're telling us about unevenness or slipperiness, all kinds of factors that our brain can take into account in adjusting how we're moving so that we maintain our balance and we can have some agility when we're moving across different terrains, right? So it's a good, good thing to have. Um, if we stick our feet in shoes all the time, some of those nerves will downregulate a little bit and they're not going to be as responsive, right? And maybe you've noticed that. You take your shoes off and at first you're walking around, your feet are kind of numb and they're not very sensitive to the surfaces you're walking on. But the more you're out of your shoes, they start to wake up a little bit more, right? Mm -hmm. And they give a little more accurate feedback. They start to discern between, oh, you know, I don't know if you've seen those little um, things that are outside the front door that you can wipe your feet on, a little mat outside the front door, but they make some that have like a shaved rock uh, glued onto it. So you have this little rocky surface, right? So like walking on that or doing like mountain pose or tree pose on that would be really interesting to challenge your balance and to wake up your receptors in your feet to help improve your balance over time. Hmm. Does that kind of get to a little yeah. bit of what you were curious about or was yeah. there anything else that kind of? No. Yeah. I just think it's, I just think it's really cool. I mean, I think our generation, we all kind of take off our shoes and we come in the house or maybe it's a city thing. I don't know, mm-hmm. but I was always, my parents were always like, put your shoes on. Right. You're going to step on something. Right, <laughs> right, right. But it's all about avoiding injury when you're a kid. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. But it does, yeah. it does make sense that. I just love that, that like the more your, your feet can feel things, the better your feet will be at feeling things. And then in turn, that, yeah. that will help you balance, which, you know, as people are and, aging, that yeah. just becomes a major fear is losing their balance. Yes. yes. And for much older adults, you know, when you get to be 65 or older, 70, 75, and believe me, I'm not calling people 65 old. I'm mm-hmm. just saying they're older mm-hmm. because I know some people in their 60s that are, you know, putting people in their 30s to shame in terms of the lives they're leading. So, you know, this isn't about ageism. But what this is about is when we get older, if we are not utilizing our feet regularly, and if we're not flexible enough to see the bottoms of our feet, and our feet actually start to get a little numb, whether it's because we have diabetes and the control isn't good and we're losing sensation there, you know, one of the things that really gets people into trouble in their older years is undiagnosed sores or wounds or cuts or scrapes on the feet that end up getting infected. And because they're not, you know, as healthy as they could be, they end up with a serious condition going on with their foot that can lead to, you know, not being able to get around very well. So if we can, again, keep enough flexibility in the body to be able to look at the soles of our feet regularly, if we can be strong enough to get out and, and do our practice regularly, if we can get out of our shoes and be aware of the surfaces we're walking on and say, what does this feel like? And, and kind of check in. Am I maintaining good sensation in the soles of the feet? Maybe I get to the doctor quicker if things start to change a little bit, and then I can do something about that before waiting, for, instead of waiting a long time. Then possibly that's going to add to our health span over time. Right. Keeping right, us right, healthier right. longer. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. Not being down for the count. Exactly. Yeah. Or out for the couch. Yeah. 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 Okay. Regarding agility. So one thing that you write about in the agility chapter is that we, you know, we lose, we naturally lose speed. And I think you said explosiveness as we age, like that ability to kind of respond quickly. So one thing I wonder about is, is jumping, you know, because there are yoga Mm -hmm. practices where there are jumpings. I mean, you can do it in the anger system or the Ashtanga system. Right. Do you recommend that for people as they age every once in a while in a practice? Or is there some other dynamic way to 
to address that? Well, I think it depends a little bit on when you're starting, how old you are, and what other circumstances you're dealing with in your own life, right? So, for example, if you had osteoporosis, jumping might be too much jarring that could affect your bones in a negative way, for example. Um, But if you are relatively healthy, probably at just about any age. Now, here's the thing. If I jump back to the same spot every time I do my flow practice, that may or may not helping. That's not going to help maximally to improve my agility. It's certainly, if I'm kind of moving quickly, going to wake up certain parts of my muscle fibers that are involved in fast twitch action, which are those explosive actions that we're talking about. So I can make quick, decisive, strong movements to navigate whatever I'm trying to navigate out there in the real world. So what I suggest is if you're going to add in kind of jumping or hopping or stepping is that you pick different spots to jump and step and move to. So you have to modify your poses a little bit. You have to make them different. You have to be creative so that because of the real world, you're not going to be able to always jump to the same spot and get the result that you want, right? Right. You're going to be really good with the muscles in that area, but the muscle fibers to the right or left of that might not know what to do or be strong enough to do it. So if we want to kind of maintain the muscle fibers involved in that particular action, it's a good idea to vary how you practice. Interesting. Now, there are some teachers out there that are doing that more and more. I like to kind of create new movement patterns for people so that it's not what they always know, and then they have to pay attention and they have to learn something new. And the variety is working their muscles and joints and tissues in a different way and interacting with their brain in a different way. So on multiple levels, it's really beneficial. But you might have to look around or you might just have to start to get a little creative on your own in your home practice as you play with that a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's how you're going to actually um, use your yoga practice to maintain your agility over time. That's interesting. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of when I was introduced to the idea of heart rate variability, right? Mm-hmm. Which is like just doing 30 minutes of cardio every day. Sure. It makes your heart stronger. It might maintain things, but I feel like it was Kelly McGonigal who'd done a ton of studies with heart rate variability that part of mm-hmm. the real measure she was using was if you were doing like intense cardio and then you stopped, how quickly did your heart come back to normal? So in other mm-hmm. words, the, the the benefit is when you switch things up, you know, you, you create the, the ability right. for your heart to respond to whatever it is that you're doing. Sure. Yeah, that's true. And also, I I believe that is true from what I've read also. But one thing I would add to that is that practices that are non-physical practices, such as pranayama and also meditative practices, have also been shown to improve heart rate variability. So this is good news because maybe you're not really keen on going to the gym and doing 30 minutes of cardio, Mm -hmm. but you'd like to do something that's going to help your overall cardiovascular health stay good over time. In fact, we devoted a whole chapter in the book to heart health, right? Mm -hmm. Preventative heart health using yoga. And so the good news is that multiple tools in your yoga toolbox, physical asana, breath work, meditation, all these different, they give you different options on how you can construct a practice that, that you like to do, that resonates with what you'd like to do and get some good benefits out of it. Right. And on any given day, it doesn't have to be a one size fits all, right? Yeah. 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 I really enjoyed the chapters at the end, the heart health chapter and the brain chapter. You use the phrase a couple of times in the heart health chapter about, about the importance of resting your heart. 
And, you know, in exercise science, you always hear about, you know, working your heart and making your heart stronger. So it's kind of a welcome thing for me to read that it's also important to, to rest your heart. So can you mm-hmm. talk about the practices that, that provide that, the yoga practices that provide that, sure. that rest? Yeah. 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 I think you give your heart a nice rest when you do a gentle yoga practice, when you do a restorative yoga practice, when you do a practice that includes some kind of gentle supported inversions, which actually trigger the baroreceptor nerves in your uh, aortic arch of your heart, which is a big blood vessel that leads out of your heart, and in the carotid arteries in your neck, and helps your nervous system in your body shift into a lower blood pressure and lower heart rate situation. So those are some of the physical practices that are really nice. And then the pranayamas that are quieting to the nervous system, such as lengthening the out-breath relative to the in-breath. So taking... For example, breathing in for one second and breathing out for two seconds and doing that for several minutes as long as it doesn't cause you to feel agitated or, you know, um, uncomfortable in any way. So, And there are several, and we talk about them in the book uh, in the section on breathing techniques. There are several different, you know, ways that you can use your pranayama to also rest the physical heart so it's not working so hard moment by moment. And then also your meditation techniques that almost to a T, almost all of them are generally quieting for your nervous system. They get the, the whirlpools of thoughts going here and there all day long to quiet down a little bit. And that quieting of the nervous system and the mind, actually the chatter of the mind, has a feedback to the cardiovascular system, which also allows the heart to not have to pump so intensely mm-hmm. from moment to moment. But those are all, those are just three really nice ways to work. Mm-hmm. And I, there's one, um, I think it was a quote from a, a doctor in your book that the quote, what's good for the heart is good for the brain. <laughs> yeah, that looks like, well, he's a research scientist. His name is Ram Rowe, and he has contributed to the blog for many years. And I used to go up to where he worked at the Buck Institute in Novato, which is a place where they do basic aging research on cells and, and that sort of thing. And Ram was a, a scientist there, and I would teach yoga to the scientists and the staff, the administrative staff, once or twice a week. And uh, he went on to study Ayurveda, and he wears many hats. He's a pretty smart guy. And from his research and his investigations, he really feels strongly that what's good for the heart is good for the brain. Hmm. Because, you know, maintaining continual good blood flow to the brain is an essential feature of keeping the brain healthy over time. Hmm. So if my heart health is really good and my blood vessels are healthy and they're not getting clogged up with plaque and at risk of throwing a a clot to my brain and causing a stroke, then I'm doing a lot of really good things for my future brain health. So yeah, cardiovascular health has a direct and positive impact on brain health over time. And so inversions can have an additional benefit then, right? If they're bringing blood... Possibly. Possibly, okay. Yeah, not, but, but not by sending more blood to the brain. Okay. Yes, there's a rush of blood toward the head, but there's a pretty sophisticated mechanism that our body and brain have to prevent sudden surges in blood pressure inside the brain itself, inside the skull. So because of that, people who have a high blood pressure that is not well controlled, we often recommend that they avoid inversions especially the full inversions like handstand and, and shoulder stand and such, because we're, you know, we're worried in that case that it's going to actually have a negative effect on their cardiovascular system, which then is going to negatively impact their brain. 
right? So that's one of the reasons why we're a little careful with inversions for people in that situation. Okay. So I would say generally that inversions are good because they do challenge our blood pressure and our cardiovascular system a little bit, and they maybe optimize how well it responds to changing conditions. Uh, but I wouldn't say that inversions necessarily directly improve blood flow to the brain. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, but I do think it, I think that they can be a good part of brain health as well. Probably more for the mind quieting effects and the general support supported benefits that come for your cardiovascular system and those sorts of benefits as well. I have one more note that I wrote to myself that I thought was interesting about another study that I think that's that same doctor from the Buck Institute. He feels that strong legs correlate to a strong cardiovascular system. Did I get that right? It was that, no, it was, it was that maintaining leg strength helps to maintain a cognitive function over time. Okay, so, okay, so brain function. Legs and brain. Yeah, it was about the brain. Yeah. And here's the deal okay. there was a study done a couple of years ago on twins in the United Kingdom. And twin studies tend to produce more accurate results because uh, the twins are so similar that a lot of variables that would exist in, in a random population are taken into account. So you get kind of really good data. Hmm. So what they did in this study that lasted like eight or 10 years is they evaluated the leg strength of the people in the study at the beginning of the study and at the end of the study. And then they also did cognitive tests at the beginning of the study and at the end of the study, memory, recall, problem solving, all that sort of thing. And what they found is in the twin who maintained better leg strength, which was a function of overall exercise, right? That meant that that twin was exercising more regularly than their other twin was, that they did, that their cognitive function was better than the other twin was. Wow. Right? So from that study, it's not a study on yoga, but it's a study on leg strength as a representation of physical fitness and regular exercise. Those individuals did better in terms of their brain function over time. So the good news there is, you know, there's all this stuff with uh, the company like Luminosity and some of these other things where you do brain games, but they're not physical, right? They're just they're mental games. Mm -hmm. And there may be some evidence that that's helpful. But this study says that physical activity actually contributes to ongoing better cognitive function of our brain as we get older. And yoga asana can be a part of that program, a very nice part of that program. Are there any theories as to why that is, that physical exercise, movement, yoga could potentially benefit yeah, the brain as yeah. we age? Oh, yeah. There's a couple of studies done that look at the effect down on a, on a, uh, on a molecular or a cellular level. One sophisticated study uh, that showed that exercise affected something called brain-derived neurotropic factor. <laughs> oh, which, I, I actually know what is, that is. Have you heard of this? I do, because yeah. I do the ketogenic yeah, diet. Yeah, Yeah, BDNF. So, you know, that, that exercise actually increased brain-derived neurotropic factor, which improves, like, the repair of our neurons and the growth of new myelin from oligodendrocytes, all these sophisticated cells in the brain. So they're getting to the point where they're starting to understand you know, what happens on a cellular level, what happens on a chemical level, what happens on, you know, little neuron tracks firing more efficiently, um, how the exercise and yoga practices help to eliminate toxins that build up, things like interleukin-6 
that build up inside the brain tissue. So it's, you know, we're really learning a lot very quickly right now. This area of research is a very exciting and energized area of research. And, you know, I suspect we're just going to learn more and more over the next couple of years that will support what we suspect is happening already, but we'll be able to talk about it in very clear scientific terms with our students and with our clients if we're yoga therapists and, and that sort of thing, which would be really great. Yeah, it is really exciting. Exciting time. I know. Are there, is there anything else that you would like to talk about, uh, about your book that I haven't covered? And then I want to ask you about how your yoga practice is going and how you're practicing these days, what your approach is. Awesome. Awesome. I would, I would mention also that one of the three pillars that we talk about is we talk about maintaining independence. We talk about improving health span. And then we talk about cultivating equanimity. And this is the one that's kind of, I think for some people seems the softest, but as we get older, might be one of the most important factors to keep in mind. And that is that if we practice regularly, we get better and better at self-regulating our inner emotional states. So say we are confronted with a loss of function. We might normally go into a little tailspin of anxiety and worry that actually doesn't contribute very much to us coming up with a reasonable way to approach that, that new set of circumstances in our life. There's more and more information and a hypothesis that regular yoga practices, which include meditation, breath work, and even gentle yoga, they improve our internal regulation moment by moment of our emotional states. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't experience anger or fear or worry or elation or joy. It just means that when we're knocked off of our balance point, our emotional homeostasis, to the point where it is creating some challenge for us, that our practices actually allow us to self-correct more efficiently and more quickly. Right. So I, I want to, you know, if folks end up getting the book, I want to make sure that yes, that you all know that we think that this ability to influence and encourage equanimity is super powerful, mm. really powerful, and probably becomes more and more important as we get older and older because the inevitability that something will happen. Right. We're all going to get older, as the Buddha noted. We're all going to be afflicted with some illness and we're all going to eventually die. Mm -hmm. And so the equanimity practices and getting better at, at maintaining good equanimity is going to serve us up until our last breath, maybe more than being able to do a particular asana is. So I just want people to be aware of, of you know, kind of how important Nina Zolotov, my, my co-author, and I feel that is in the big scheme of yoga for healthy aging. That's so nice, Baxter. I'm really glad you brought that up. I feel like you you do talk about philosophy in the book and you weave that thread that you just talked about really well throughout. And we could all use a little more evenness. So so it's great that yeah. you yeah, that you incorporate that that piece. Thanks. And then you were curious about my practice these days. Yeah, what are you up to? What that's like? Yeah. You know, my personal practice, um, I've really been trying to be as diligent and regular with my meditation practice as possible. Any morning that I don't have to, I have a couple of early morning classes on Monday and Wednesday. So I honestly get up earlier on those days to do my meditation practices. But the other days of the week, it's been really great. I've been able to get up and, and, and do my sit regularly. And then I kind of listen to my body. And if my body really kind of tells me specifically that some yoga practice, asana practice is important that day, then I'll, I'll add that in. But I don't necessarily practice asana every single day. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I'm really always been really interested in yoga philosophy. So, you know, I try to get some of the newest books that are out. And we, in fact, on the blog, we're probably going to dive into Avidya a little bit more. One of the one of the concepts in yoga that's quite interesting, kind of update and clarify some information we have on there that maybe isn't as accurate as, as uh, we would like. So, you know, that's something else that I really enjoy. So this week I've been like reading all my philosophy books hmm. and uh, that's been super fun. Do you have any that you want to recommend for people? I love Richard Rosen's book, Yoga FAQ, which is a really great kind of question and answer book that he did recently. Yeah. I, thought, I think it's chock full of great information. We had that him on the show last year about that book. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Folks should listen to that if it's archived. I bet it was a great conversation. Yes. And then uh, Pandit Rajmani uh, Tunganate, who's the spiritual leader at the Himalayan Institute, has uh, two books out. Uh, the first one is on the first part of the Yoga Sutras, the first of four sections, and the second book is on the second part. And I'm really enjoying his take on things as well. And I also, just if you're kind of newer to yoga philosophy and the Yoga Sutras in particular, I love Nikolai Bachman's workbook and flashcards and audio CD kit. It's expensive, but man, I, I really love that. And I loved going through that. And I think uh, it's a great um, resource to have in your library if you're into that sort of thing. Cool. I will definitely yeah. put links to those up on the show notes page. That's really helpful. Oh, thanks. That's great. <laughs> um, the other thing I would mention is that in the spring, I started uh, for the first time in maybe 40 years <laughs> hitting the tennis ball around a little bit. And my partner, Melina, and I started doing that together. And then we started taking lessons periodically. And in fact, I've been taking a lesson almost once a week since October. And that's been really interesting because, you know, talk about agility in action. You know, that ball coming back and then having to meet it just right in three-dimensional time and space has really added kind of new uh, interest in kind of how my yoga practices can contribute to improving my tennis game, which has been really fun for me lately. So, you know, tennis, you know, usually causes new tightnesses in new areas, just like playing the violin did. So it's been really interesting to have a new activity that I'm enjoying a lot and then finding the interface between the yoga practices and the, and the tennis game, because it's actually quite, can be quite meditative. It can be quite engaging on so many levels. So that's been really kind of fun and exciting for me in the last couple months. That's so good. Yeah, I have not. I think it's probably been about 40 years for me, too, since I've picked up a tennis racket. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know, we all did that as kids. You know, we go run around and play for a little while. But I think after high school, I never really, I'm sure I played here and there, but I never did it consistently. Right. And I have a brother who's a year younger than me who's been playing tennis consistently his whole life. And so it's, it, I'm, I'm excited to get together with him in a couple months and hit the ball around. Cause nice. I know he's a really good player and it'll be fun to see if I can hit the ball back to him consistently, <laughs> which will be great. Yeah. That's the goal, right? Just get it that's back. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'll win, but it'll be fun to play. Yeah. 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 Baxter, I have one more question. Do you have any videos associated with the book or the work that you have done on the blog? So I have a, a, a YouTube channel called Baxter Bell Yoga. Okay. And there are many, many practices on there. I have a year's worth of weekly balance poses that I made up. So I took some traditional yoga poses and I modified and then I created new ones. And sometimes my readers on Yoga for Healthy Aging would send me uh, ideas and I would work with those. I also have some uh, mini vinyasa, which we talk about a little bit in the book and the second part, you know, dynamic sequences where you move in and out of poses. I have probably a year and a half's worth of those weekly posts up on that channel. 
And then yogauonline.com carries some practices for cardiovascular health, for a whole bunch of different topics that I've done with them, yoga for strength, yoga for flexibility. So they offer, I think, like a 99-cent one-month trial oh, wow. to use their uh, practice channel on yogauonline.com. So that's a place where people can find stuff. And I'm actually working on a set of videos right now that I'm hoping will be done by about uh, early May of 2018 that will look at the essential yoga poses that appear in the book. So it will supplement some of the poses that I'll, I'll show on those videos will be similar, and some of them will be a little different. So hopefully expand some of the options you have when you're looking at how you can do poses in different ways at different ages. Cool. You got you got it all going on. It's all happening. So much going on. <laughs> That's right. Great. Well, I'll put links to all of those things up on the show notes page. And oh, thank you. That's it was wonderful. Just, it was just great to talk to you. It's great to talk to you. And I have to say, Andrew, it feels like a, a day hasn't gone by. Just the the comfortableness of, of being in conversation with you. So it's so great to hear your voice and I certainly hope everything's going well for you and your family as well. I know. Likewise. I know. I, I feel All the right. same. It's great to talk. Thanks so much, Baxter. Thanks for your time. All right. And tell Jason I said hi. Okay. Thank you. I will. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening. You can find show notes for this episode at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 92. I can't believe it's already episode 92. It's incredible. If you're enjoying the podcast, please share it with a friend or share it on social media and tag me and I'll see you and say hello. Or if you really enjoy it, leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. Until next week, enjoy your practice. I travel many miles.